You're tuned in to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Welcome to the show. I'm Jason P. Woodbury, and each week I sit down with a guest to talk about their art, process, and worldview. My guest on the program this week is Joe Wong. Joe is an exceedingly busy person. He hosts the interview podcast, The Trap Set, where he talks with people like Mixmaster Mike, Sharon Van Etten, Jim Keltner, and Georgia Hubley of Yola Tango. Those are all just some recent episodes. He also makes music for film and TV. You've probably heard his work on Master of None, Russian Doll, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, and The Midnight Gospel. Joe has long played music with people like Mary Timoney of Helium and Marnie Stern, but recently he released his solo debut long player, Night Creatures. Produced by Timoney, who also plays on it, it finds him joined by members of the Flaming Lips, War on Drugs, and That Dog, for a set of deeply cinematic and psychedelic pop, which brings to mind the mystical lushness of Scott Walker, The Zombies, and Pink Floyd. One of the album's best songs, Dreams Wash Away, was featured in Duncan Trussell's Midnight Gospel finale on Netflix, easily one of the most affecting things you'll see all year. And like that episode, Night Creatures grapples with mortality and existential dread, but remains vivid, colorful, and beautiful. Thanks for listening to Transmissions. If you enjoy these shows, please consider leaving us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show. They can listen most anywhere they get podcasts and always direct at AquariumDrunker.com where they'll find 15 years worth of features, mixtapes, interviews, radio playlists, audio-visual excursions, and a lot more. And if you want to take your support a step further, check us out on Patreon. All right, here's my talk with Joe Wong. Thanks for listening. We'll speak more on the other side. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to join me here on the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. Uh, I appreciate you uh, doing so. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to interview somebody who, among you know many other things that you do, uh, you also do interviews. Uh, you've had a lot of fascinating people on your show, The Trap Set, uh, just this year, Mixmaster Mike, Jim Keltner, Georgia Hubley from Yola Tango, a friend of the pod, Jen Wozner, and those are all just this year. Have you ever had somebody who's known for doing interviews as well? Um, no, not really. Not off the top of my head. Okay. <laughs> You've been doing the show for, for, uh, for a while now, five, five years. Yeah. Coming up on six years. Coming up on six years. How often do you get nervous before a talk at this point? Rarely. Um, the first several, uh, that we did maybe the first 12 or 20, um, I got viscerally nervous before and, um, for the first hundred or so, uh, it was nerve wracking to listen to my voice back, uh, as we were editing it together. But, um, now it's pretty, pretty much on, um, it's pretty smooth. I'm, I'm pretty used to it. Has doing the podcast just in general informed the way that, that you have conversations with people? It must have. Uh, I think it's made me a better listener. And I can say that because I 
often listen back to the episodes after they've been recorded. And um, I notice that I'm better at listening to other people and, and not speaking as much. One time somebody suggested that if you're speaking to someone else, you should aim for this ratio of letting them talk seven times to the one that you're speaking. And I think I'm pretty close to that when I'm hosting a podcast. When you first started though, was it, was it a diff- was it a little bit of a different feeling? I know one thing that just from doing this show, you know, there are times where you're you're nervous that if you don't uh, provide the guest enough, you know, then they're not going to feel like they sort of have uh, a direction to go in conversationally. Uh, do you uh, ha- has doing the the show, you know, sort of changed what you listen for when you're listening to someone talk? I think it's just made me more astute at following the tangents that naturally arise when somebody says something interesting or when I can tell that somebody's excited about a particular line of inquiry or um, discussion. Right, right. So you're you're willing to sort of abandon the the script. Do you write pretty heavy sort of outlines of questions? I did when I started, but now there is no script. There are no outlines. Um, I, I learned relatively early on that I was missing opportunities if I would go in overprepared. Um, there were some guests early on that had written autobiographies, and I remember reading them and bookmarking them and thinking of all the things that I wanted to discuss and then I missed out potentially on things that could have been discussed in the moment or new directions. Yeah, yeah. You gotta kind of remain open in that way, or else you you don't you miss the entryway to some some pretty interesting stuff. I think you you have played music, you know, the entire time long before you started the podcast. Um, you know. Has it worked? The has, has the show informed the way you you make music, or the other way around? You know, does does playing music inform the way you think about the broadcasts in terms of, you know, either rhythmic quality or sort of tonality? I mean, do, are those things that you sort of think about? Well, I think that if you're a great musician, then you have to have a strong sense of empathy because you know music is an innately social art form and it requires you to in most cases play along with other people so uh perhaps spending decades as a musician made me you know better prepared me to host a show uh where i'm having conversations with other people um but i'll i'll also say that uh the show was kind of born out of the show was born out of a time uh, when I was considering uh, that potentially I'd made a mistake by dedicating my life to music um, because I wasn't feeling the same type of visceral joy from playing music anymore. I was on tour and I couldn't really listen to music during the day I felt oversaturated. So I started listening to podcasts and at the end of one tour, the band I was playing in got an invite to, to go to an SNL taping in New York. And 
one of the other people that was hanging out was Brendan Canty, who ultimately became the first guest on my show. And um, Brendan had, from my, from my perspective, led a life that I wanted to lead. He'd um, played in several great bands. Um, he was a film and television composer. He had a family. It seemed like he had, had it all figured out. Um, as we've subsequently become close friends, I know he definitely doesn't have it all figured out. Nobody does. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I was grilling yeah. him. I was grilling him, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what he was doing that I hadn't done, or you know, just it was kind of like a, a futile attempt to try to control uh, the circumstances of my life. Um, but anyway, I thought it could make for a great first podcast. And so, to answer your question. Um, I feel like each conversation I've had has been like a rung in a ladder that pulled me out of this dark place um, that I've in retrospect decided, you know, was mostly due to difficult things that were going on in my life and, um, and some kind of like creative inertia, having these conversations with people from all walks of life about uh, their creative lives and their, um, struggles pulled me out of this dark place and back to fertile ground. Um, and part of that is just the act of having regular, uh, relatively deep conversations with other human beings, which I think we're designed to do as, as humans, but, um, we've obscured that <laughs> it by, uh, you know, in our current, society and i'm not even talking about pandemic times but there's often things serving as intermediaries that are extracting profit out of any sort of human interaction and it's rare to sit down and ask ask somebody about their life and and really just listen for an hour and i got to do that at least once a week and i happened to get to do it with people that were heroes of mine so it's it's been a really great uh, positive experience and it definitely helped me out as a musician. Well, so I guess that, that leads us nicely to, to night creatures, your new record, which is a really, I mean, really fantastic record, man. Congrats on, on making that. Thank you very much. How long had, had these songs been kicking around? Were these songs that you have been sort of working at over the last, how, how long, how long have these songs been, you know, in your notebooks and stuff? Um, well, they weren't really in my notebooks, but they were on my voice memos on my phone. Um, you got a lot of, a lot of, you know, w whatever the location you're at one or whatever. Yeah. I've got files saved on the phone. <laughs> yeah. I've got thousands of those. I, I don't turn on location services because I'm paranoid about tech companies tracking me, but, um, well, yeah, that's valid. So is it this unti untitled one or whatever? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say maybe a year and a half. Um, it, it wasn't as though they had been sitting around for decades, although the desire to make something like this had been um, building up for a, quite a long time. Um, and I don't think I would have made it without the podcast. Uh, like I said, I, I think that it, it was... It was the ladder that pulled me out of the well. 
you, I mean, obviously you've, you've been involved with some really big projects, you know, to all the boys I've loved before and master of none and Russian doll. And you've made records and, and been in bands with all sorts of, you know, folks, people like Marnie Stern and Mary Timoney who produced this record and parts and labor. So you'd obviously, you've established yourself as a musician, but this was the first time that you did a record under your own name, sort of in the captain's chair, basically. Right. Yes. How did that feel compared to being, you know, to playing the roles that you'd played in in the past? Was it a was it a pretty exciting feeling? It felt um, it felt like the right thing to be doing. Uh, and if I'm honest with myself, it's something I wanted to do for a long time. But it's also really creatively satisfying to play drums for someone's band or to compose music for somebody's film or television show, especially if that person is brilliant. And I've had the good fortune to work with lots of folks that are brilliant. Um, but it's kind of like being a kindergarten teacher when you really are harboring desires to be a parent. So, um, you know, the two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. In fact, you know, when I started making this record, I think it made me better at composing just because it made me more confident creatively. It gave me my own outlet and um, made me uh, approach my composing jobs with more zeal. But um, I think making the record is the most rewarding thing I've ever done creatively. And it kind of returned me to the feeling that I had when I, would, when I first started recording with bands when I was 14 or 15. Uh, it brought that nervousness back, the healthy, healthy nervousness, uh, and the stakes were higher, um, in a, in a really, uh, productive way. You, what, what's the, uh, how many pieces is the orchestra that you, you work with this? You've got strings, you've got horns. How many, uh, how many pieces were most of these charts sort of written for? Um, well, if we're, if we're not talking about the rhythm section, then there's about 20 orchestral players on each track. And then, and then with, yeah, with the rhythm section, it's well, you, with the you, rhythm you, section, I played lots of the parts and Mary Timoney, uh, played guitar. And then we had some special guests like Steve Drozd, uh, played double drums with me on, on a song called in the morning. And he played a guitar solo on that. But, um, you know, when we played this album live, uh, we did it with about 20 people on stage and that was a stripped back version of, <laughs> of, uh, what's on the album. Yeah. I mean, I, I, having, you know, a 20 piece orchestra or 20 players, I mean, that's a pretty, uh, I don't know how many first records have that, you know what I mean? Obviously it, it, it really, uh, speaks to the fact that this is far from your first foray into music, you know? having the confidence to sort of work with that many players. But, but you know, was that something that, that how, how did the idea to employ, you know, that much orchestration sort of come up in the conversations that you had with, with Mary when you started talking about what this record might, might be? Well, I think it was always in my mind from the moment that I wrote the songs. I, I always heard the strings and horns. Um, and 
you know, fortunately, because I work as a film and TV composer, I had relationships with most of the players that had that played on my album. Uh, we'd worked together on shows and films. So I was familiar with that territory. Um, and it's a style that I like, uh, you know, the, lots of the stuff that I was listening to um, around that time used or larger scale orchestrations like the Walker brothers or love or the zombies. Um, in fact, uh, after one of the, uh, basic tracking sessions, I interviewed the zombies. So we went from the studio in Joshua tree and drove to Palm Springs where I interviewed Colin and Rod from the zombies. And then they gave a performance. So they were on my mind when we were making it. But I, I like uh, I like the era when um, pop music used lots of live players. I just it's it sounds great to me, and I wanted to experiment with it. The record has this really vivid and you know hallucinatory thing, especially on a song like you know in the morning, which is really fav- one of my favorites. I really I really like that one, and you sing. <laughs> at the dawning of mankind will raise the chalice high. And, you know, and it's just like, that's such a whopper of a sort of, I, I think that speaks to the grandiosity of the record in a way. And sort of the, uh, the thing you're talking about, how in, let's say like the late sixties, there was this sense that a record could be just a huge sort of monumental thing, you know, sound huge from you know phil Spector or like you said those love records or certainly walker brothers records and scott walker records you know um but i was thinking about it and and a lot of times it feels to me like in 2020 you know psychedelic records often are very fun or they're kind of very trippy you know but it doesn't always feel like they're necessarily the exact same thing doing both of those things at once. Whereas this record, it really does. I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, certainly there's some darkness on the record and we'll get to that, but it sounds like a really exuberant record. Um, and uh, I just want to know, I mean, how much fun were you and Mary having working on on these songs? And and was the was the vibe pretty, uh, pretty loose? Yeah, I think it took a minute to get over my apprehension. Um, I booked a flight for Mary to come out and start recording. And that was part of my whole plan. Um, I'd wanted to make a record for a long time and hadn't. I'd aborted the effort several times before. And I asked myself why it was possible for me to write hundreds of hours of music in service of other people's projects every year, but why I couldn't make a statement of my own. And um, the answer that I, that I came up with was that uh, I'm too neurotic to be left to my own devices and I should employ the same type of structure and deadline that I use when I'm scoring a film or television show where often, you know, the, the turnaround doesn't allow my neuroses to creep in. I just have to focus and finish. And um, so I brought in Mary to produce because she's somebody that I've, worked with for a long time and somebody who I trust. And, um, I booked another studio, even though I have my own place because I wanted to be, um, committed to working on this project and this project alone for the duration of that session. Um, 
But the day before yeah. Mary was scheduled to fly out for the first time, I was so nervous that I <laughs> called her and told her, hey, maybe you want to just go on vacation instead. Maybe, you know, if you want to come out here and <laughs> hang out, uh, you know, I was terrified for whatever reason. Um, but we got after we got started, after about the first five minutes, it just fell into place and all of the uh, you know, the skill set that I use in my day-to-day life as a composer and um, the muscles that I've developed in that career um, just kind of kicked into place and everything moved along pretty quickly. And after the first couple uh, songs were tracked in that first session, then uh, we had a lot of momentum and uh, it was a blast. It, it was actually a lot of fun the whole time. Uh, one of the highlights was the day that we tracked the uh, strings and horns over at uh, Henson Studios, which was previously A and M, um, in the room where they recorded "We Are the World," <laughs> and uh, yeah. before that, it was Charlie Chaplin's lot. So, um, yeah, there's it, a lot of history in that room. Yeah, and, and it was it was a blast to transformed the record in the course of like two hours. I mean, the players that I hired were so fantastic that we got most of them on the first or second take. And, um, you know, it was like we had spent all this time putting together a blueprint and then the house just popped up overnight almost. Um, and one of the things that happened on that day that was really crazy is, you know, we were in the middle of a take and I felt somebody standing behind me. I wasn't sure who it was. And I turned around and it was Cat Stevens, <laughs> um, whose music I grew up with. And uh, he was just visiting the studio. Um, but he, he popped in and uh, we hung out for five minutes. I had to tell everybody to take a break. I'd never met him before, but it was kind of overwhelming on top of the pressure of, you know, finishing this string session yeah. in time. But I had to, I had to talk to cat Yusuf for a Wait, while. Yeah. You, you've got the guy who made tea for the tiller man, you know, like hanging out while you're making a record. You, you probably should hit pause and, and talk with him. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, nice tune. Uh, so that, that pretty much made my day. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. When you guys were in that room, I mean, did anybody reference the look Bob Dylan makes in the We Are the World video, you know, where he's got that kind of like consternation look on his face? Were there moments in the studio where that was a reference or uh, was it pretty smooth sailing overall? It, nobody uh, nobody made that look. And, you know, all the players Good. that I worked with <laughs> have been in that room countless times. So it was just another day for them. But to me, it was very special. Yeah. I've interviewed Mary Timoney for Aquarium Drunkard and I mean she's just such a cool artist she's such an interesting person and such a creative force she just sort of seems capable of acing whatever she tries to do what was she what was she like to work she plays guitar on the record too right so she's producing and sort of uh, um, supporting most of the songs you know in a sort of like integral integral way yeah, I, I couldn't have done it without her. So integral is uh, an accurate word. Um, but Mary's one of my closest friends. Um, she's somebody with whom I share 
an aesthetic and she's also somebody who's been making records since 1989 with autoclave um but you know i first became aware of her when i was in high school and they would play helium on the local college radio station or on 120 minutes on mtv and and then um in 2005 she and i toured the country as a duo in a station wagon and we've just been really close ever since. But um, yeah, I mean, she she was just there as somebody that could, uh, you know, I could bounce ideas off of, or, you know, she was there to let me know if a take was good or if I should try it again. But mostly she was just extremely supportive and, um, you know, effortlessly great on guitar. And, um, yeah, it was like she, she was my spirit guide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so many great moments, you know, on the record. Where I think, you know, like the song Day After Day, there are so many great guitar moments in that. And I know you played guitar on the record as well, right? Yes. So, I mean, uh, generally speaking, were you doing, you know, rhythms or are you playing some lead on this record as well? I was mostly playing rhythm guitar. Um, and, and then some of the lead parts were things that I came up with melodically, but I knew Mary could take it to the next level just with mm. the, her touch on the instrument. So I tried to, I tried to, uh, you know, delegate as much to her as possible. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes sense. Just in the same way that you're, you know, orchestrating things for strings and horns, you know, if you've got a particular sound sort of, uh, you know, or rather if you've got it written out in a way and you can hand it over to somebody who's going to be a master of that particular sound, that must've been a pretty, uh, that must've been a pretty liberating and sort of, uh, exciting thing to be able to, uh, deploy all of these experts, you know, in service of your, of your songs. Yeah. It was extraordinarily, um, exciting to do that. And, and I, luckily I get to do it in my career as a composer too, but, um, you know, in this situation, I get to be the arbiter of, you know, what's working and what's not. Whereas when you're composing for somebody else, then they're the ultimate judge. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah. It, it was, I mean, the amount of talented people on this record is astounding. <laughs> I'm probably the least talented person on it, which is uh, how how it should be, right? Don't they say that you should surround yourself with people that are better than you? We had Bill Frizzell here on the podcast, and he told me that the key to his success is to be the weakest link in any band that he assembles for one of his albums. So, yeah, it seems like you're you're right on the money. Oh, good. This record, I alluded to it a bit ago, it's not afraid to, it's, it's a lot of fun and, it's, and it is very, uh, you know, sort of joyful, but it's also not afraid to get kind of dark. Um, songs like Shadow of the Year and, and Nuclear Rainbow, you know, um, it's like you're, you're kind of referencing uh, apocalypses or, you know, uh, cataclysmic situations to some degree. And I think that in 2020, everybody's thinking that way, you know, but... Uh, but I'm curious what kind of notions you sort of grew up with around, say, something like the the end of the world. I didn't necessarily grow up with notions around the end of the world, um, but I grew up in an atheist household. 
And I was uh, obsessed with death from the time I was about six. I can remember conceiving of my own death as I was waking up from a nap one day and being horrified uh, at the notion of becoming nothing. And I started crying and <laughs> my mom was wondering what was the problem. And I asked her, what happens when you die? And she said, nobody knows because nobody's ever come back to life and told us what happens. And that's true. But it also, um, I think, you know, I, I can see the appeal in um, having faith in something because uh, then you can just kind of put that existential dread to the back of your mind and focus on life. But um, existential dread was with me uh, probably more than it was with most uh, from an early age. I, it was something I thought about and something that um, affected the way that I thought. Um, you know, it's interesting. We didn't believe in God, but <laughs> but I still believed in Santa Claus. So I asked... <laughs> I, I, I wrote a letter to Santa Claus and asked him for immortality for my family that year. But um, I got a Nintendo wow. instead, which is almost as good because it's a it's sort of, sort of a version of immortality in the sense that, you know, if you're if you uh, master Super Mario Brothers, you can get up to nine, 99 one ups. <laughs> right. And, uh, right. Keep coming back to life. Um, well, yeah, that's that's the thing, right? So, I mean, you can so it's it's a good uh, sort of object lesson in reincarnation, in in some ways, I guess. Yeah. So I was I was just the, I was living in anticipation that somebody I loved was going to die. Um, and um, anyway, when I made this record, it, it was after my dad had had a terrible stroke and had been living as a shadow of himself for years. Uh, he couldn't do the things that he wanted to do. Um, he wasn't thinking the same way he was living in a nursing home. Um, he needed 24 or seven care. And, um, and then, uh, you know, shortly after that triumphant string session that I did at Henson, I got the call that he was on the way out. So I flew back home and I got to hold his hand as he left this mortal coil. And it was actually kind of beautiful. It was a release um, I think mostly, especially for him, but for, for his family too, because it was such a psychic weight when somebody is somebody that you love is unhappy and, and kind of trapped in their body. Uh, but I felt like I had lost, you know, pieces of him bit by bit, but when he finally died, uh, and I was sitting there holding his hand, it felt very natural like a birth and um it took that existential dread off of a pedestal um you know it makes sense often the anticipation of something is worse than that thing itself um but also you know i think our society is largely structured to make us forget about that you know about our knowledge of that of our mortality, which is something that makes us uniquely, you know, which makes human beings human, um, is, you know, self knowledge of death. And, um, you know, I think right now, some of the, some of those structures are, uh, crumbling 
and everybody's feeling closer to that that sense of dread. Um, but it's always been there. It's just been obscured by commercialism or you know whatever else that whatever other barriers that we erect. Well, right. We don't we don't like talking about it, and so we don't, <laughs> and we create a lot of things to keep us from talking about it you know to the point that i don't think that our i don't want to take this totally macro scale you know but it doesn't feel like we have even had it doesn't feel to me like we've even really begun to have the conversation about what's actually happened this year you know what i mean uh in terms of contextualizing the scale of death that's occurred in our not just our country, the whole the whole planet, you know, but all over, um, it's a pretty it's a pretty serious thing that that's occurred, and and I don't feel like we necessarily have a lot of good language around uh, to use to talk about this, you know, because uh, that dread is hard to face, you know, and also that unknowing is very hard to face, but I think that people are certain people at least are trying to come up with, with ways to have this conversation. And, uh, you know, y- you sing in dreams wash away, you know, this thing about, about transience really, you know, and it's a beautiful song and there is some beauty to it. Um, you know, but, uh, it takes a long time for somebody to, to, uh, get to that place versus the the place of maybe the pain of losing someone. W- was that song something that you were working on, you know, uh, while your father was, you know, in the process of sort of slipping away or was that, was it written more afterward? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was imagining that song as sung from the perspective of a ghost who's welcoming somebody to the next place. Um, and, uh, it's a reassurance that transience is in fact more beautiful than permanence and that permanence isn't even real, you know? Um, and the fact that life is fleeting is what makes it precious and beautiful. Um, but it was also about kind of how our survival instincts or our will to live or our will to do anything. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's evolved to keep us alive as individuals and in species, but it can also, you know, when, when our body can become so damaged, the will to live becomes a burden, a burden. Um, and it becomes at odds with our best interests. Um, so that's what that song is about is kind of letting go, um, uh, of our will, which we, think of as central to our identity, but I think it's one step up from that. It's, it's something separate. This, the song, you know, was featured in, in, uh, uh, midnight gospel, you know, which, which was a show that Duncan Trussell and Pendleton Ward made. And I mean, I have to assume that you've heard from a lot of people, how affecting the last episode of that, season was yeah and i I felt really fortunate to work on it especially at the time you know in my life you know i was rushing to the airport to 
make it back and say goodbye to my dad just when Duncan called me to start discussing music uh, about uh, or discussing the music on Midnight Gospel. So it really came at just the right time in my life. And uh, Duncan was at the first and only show where I played these songs. We had tours scheduled all year that have now been postponed, but we played about, um, you know, 10 months ago in Los Angeles and Duncan came to the show. And when he heard that song, he's like, we have to use this on midnight gospel. So fortunately that's what happened. Did you know that it was going to soundtrack an episode in which, you know, that this kind of discussion about mortality that we're circling around was, was also going to be the center. Yeah. Because I, I had already started scoring the episode and then Duncan was mm, yeah. insisting that we use the song at the end and I was happy to, contribute it it was such a i mean obviously that 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 episode is such a beautiful thing you know and it's sad and it's funny and it's poignant you know yeah i think it's one of the greatest things i've ever had the privilege to work on to be honest yeah i i i agree i mean was there anything like a rap party or a screening or anything like that i guess probably not right because this show I mean, did you guys have anything like that before the sort of lockdown and the pandemic stuff? Yeah, there was a rap party in December and um, we didn't watch the show. We just went to a video arcade and everybody played games. We rented out a, an arcade um, and it, it was a blast. I got to hang out with Penn's mom and Duncan's family and um, all the great artists on the show. But um, I will say when we mixed that episode, um, and for folks of those, uh, for those of you that haven't been to a TV mix, it's when you mix together the music and the dialogue and the sound effects. Um, we were at a studio and all the Netflix execs that had been working on the show came by and everybody cried <laughs> when we, when we watched the, the episode for the first time. Yeah. Well, I certainly cried when I watched it for the first time as well. <laughs> um, and and everybody that I know who's watched it, you know, cried. Uh, it was it's it's really it's a really remarkable thing, and uh, and uh, and I love the idea that this this record, you know, it has this really great context on the record, and then it's got this context in the show, and it's cool that it exists in both of those places, and that they sort of carry, you know, the the feelings inspired by one carry over to the other. Uh, did you know? Uh, did working with with Duncan and uh, scoring a show that explores such sort of you know out there ideas as far as you know metaphysics or you know sort of the capital W weird you know sort of topics the way he does you know did that parallel your own exploration of similar uh, territory? I think it did. Uh, you know, Duncan and I always joke that we're just on, we have some weird synchronicity bringing us together. I mean, in this case, it was literally Pendleton th that brought us together. Who's, you know, one of my best friends too. Um, but there's, we, we know lots of the same people that, but we had never met before. We think very similarly, um, there, we have lots of the same touchstones when it comes to music and art and ideas. Um, so yes, I would say that, um, 
you know, his approach to the world parallels mine. I mean, it's even with quite literally with the podcast, you know, his podcast served a very similar function in his life that it did in that mine did in mine. And, um, he's the only other person I know that has recorded a podcast with his own mother. (laughs) I did a private podcast for my extended family where I interviewed all my aunts and uncles, um, maybe about four or five years ago. Um, so it seems like we just have a similar approach to searching. That's, that's really beautiful. When you recorded that, that, you know, those podcast talks with your, with your family, I mean, how much was it, did you, did you learn a lot of new information? Yeah, I did. And I think, you know, the great thing is it'll be there for subsequent generations. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. There's something about, you know, uh, dreams wash away that I thought, you know, I think a lot about that idea of transience, you know, and, and, and as you mentioned, you know, sort of permanence being a, uh, an illusion, you mentioned having grown up basically, you know, sort of in an atheist household, atheistic. Do you feel like your worldview has changed to the point that that wouldn't be an accurate description, uh, for you or, or does that still hold in, in, you know, your, your feelings of whatever it is that the, the universe and the the world might be? I think it still holds more than not. Um, but I do think that, uh, materialism, you know, thinking of, the physical world as we observe it empirically as the only manifestation of truth is a bit reductive. I, I now think of, you know, the material world as similar to, you know, the slashes and lines and dots that make up a written language. Um, so I think you can view it simply as, you know, what it is, but if you zoom out, then there's deeper meaning, you know, it's a higher level language. Um, I, I spent some time as a computer programmer. And so I think about low level languages and higher level abstract languages. And I think, you know, the atomic layout is, um, a map to something else, you know, or it's a, it's like poetry but it's not the only thing that there is necessarily. I think a lot about people like I've been on pretty much this entire year, like uh, a tremendous Alan Moore kick, you know, uh, the, uh, the guy who wrote Watchmen and V for mm-hmm. Vendetta and stuff. I've been reading his, his, his Promethea books and it's sort of like he's, he talks a lot about how art and language Essentially, in his view, those things are magic, basically, as he understands it. You know what I mean? In terms of like, a, as far as transcendence goes, art, language, these are things that, that really do transcend our sense of even space and time. So I think about how, you know, in that song you sing, all of your dreams will wash away, you know? And I think about how that's obviously true in so many ways, right? Because eventually we will be gone, at least in any sense that we can understand, you know? Um, But then I think about how something like a record or 
any piece of art or a piece of writing or a podcast with your aunts and uncles, you know, that will live on after we're gone. And uh, as someone who's thought so much about death, I mean, is that a sort of helpful way for you to contextualize your own artistic work? Um, do you do you ever think about that? I don't mean it in the sense of like, this is how Santa Claus will give me my immortality or whatever, but... Uh, but I mean, is, is is does that sort of thing cross your mind? I mean, I think it it used to, you know, this notion of building some sort of artistic legacy or some legacy with your life itself. But even legacies wash away too, right? And even the you know sure. universes uh, implode upon themselves ultimately. So it's really more about um, speaking of music as magic, like feeling that magic on a real level when I'm making it, that's my goal. And I think I've gotten back to a place where that's happening more often than not. I think for years, well, when I first started playing music, it was a magical experience every time. And then as, as I got more concerned with the machinations and the technique and, and, um, trying to be successful (laughs) or make an impact, the magical part of it diminished. Um, and this album was the most magical thing that I've done in the sense that it, it brought that feeling back. Um, so it's not, it's, it's nice to me to think that perhaps people will enjoy things that I've made or get something out of it. Um, after I'm gone, but that's not the main driver anymore. I, I don't know if it yeah. ever really was, but um, even if I think about it subconsciously, I don't think it is. Because you're you're focused on the magic in the the moment, the magic that's happening when you're in the in the process, or when you're you know playing these songs live in your backyard or whatever. Uh, <laughs> obviously, not on stage for the last you know ten months or whatever, but uh. Yeah, and I'm also just comfortable with this notion that um, everything that you do does have a lasting impact on the the universe. It's just not necessarily in an identifiable way, and it might, and it certainly doesn't mean that you'll be remembered. But whatever energy that you expend or whatever you do has an impact, and it sets off um, an infinite chain reaction. But it's almost like you know going into the ocean and looking at the waves and trying to identify each particle (laughs) in the, in the sea. I don't know that that, you know, you don't think of it that way. It's just, uh, it becomes obscured. It becomes part of a bigger body of, of energy, um, or matter. And, you know, I, that's what I'm more comfortable with now when I think about, uh, leaving. Have and you it's also sort of- just a matter of trying to make the time that I have as a conscious, somewhat sentient person <laughs> count. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, has this year, has it been filled with opportunities for you to do the kind of work that you feel good about doing and 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 spend time doing things that you, you know, I know this record was 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 pretty much, I would guess, done, you know, before the sort of pandemic set in and I don't know if you've started scoring other TV shows or whatever, but, you know, has this year provided you with opportunities to, to dig in, um, you know, beyond the podcast, which you do every week, uh, and, and, and kind of do the kind of work that you're into? 
Yeah. Um, I think like many people, uh, I was experiencing somewhat of a creative malaise at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but I was excited by the idea of trying to record podcasts uh, remotely, which I had never done before. So there was, you know, a good six weeks where I did daily podcasts. And that was were great. You, so, so when you, I mean, the, the episodes before were, were just all, were they all recorded live? Yeah, all in, in person? person. Yeah. 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 Um, I just find that I get better results when I can look at the person that I'm speaking with and breathe the same air and, be, you know, just be there with them. But, so there was um, a, a, a shift obviously had to occur. Yeah. But I was able to get to lots of folks that I'd been meaning to get to who don't live in Los Angeles and had no plans of coming here. And uh, it, it was great. Um, so that was, again, it was, you know, that kind of helped pull me out of uh, this apathetic place. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, I've been scoring film and TV for about 17 years now. And there's enough of a desire for what I do that I am, I've been steadily employed the whole time and I'm booked up through the first quarter of 2022. So I'm in a, a really, really fortunate position um, to know that I'll be working and working on some cool projects um, for the foreseeable future. And uh, I'm working on the second album now because it doesn't seem like we'll be able to tour um, for at least another year. And uh, one of the guests that I had on my show was a guy named Phil Collins. <laughs> and he, his advice to me was to make sure to have two albums done before you start touring as a solo artist, which is what he did. And I guess it worked out okay for him. I think he's achieved a, like a, uh, you know, a modest level of mainstream success, yeah. I mean, most people probably know him as the drummer of Genesis, but uh, he he did make some pretty great solo records in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> um, you you mentioned you know the the pan early pandemic malaise. Um, everybody that I know uh, this year has been you know, by necessity, figuring out ways to sort of unplug from the chaotic hellscape of the world and, and you know, either read things or watch movies or, or dig into TV or listen to records. I wonder if there has been any sort of particular rabbit holes that you've gone down in, in any of those fields over the last couple months that uh, have been particularly resonant. Um, well, as far as musical rabbit holes... For the beginning of the uh, pandemic, well, actually for most of it, one of my favorite things to do is just watch concert videos online at night. So I went through a deep Kate Bush phase and was watching, you know, footage of the basically the one tour that she did. Uh, and then I was getting obsessed with earth, wind and fire, watching a bunch of stuff from them, watching Curtis Mayfield's uh, performances from later in his life. Um, I got really into the Bee Gees for a minute and was, you know, checking out lots of their live stuff. Uh, so that's, that's one rabbit hole. And then um, there's a British show about 
building houses called grand designs. And that's another rabbit hole. It's a comforting rabbit hole. It's just, you know, obviously house shows are popular for a reason because you get to watch people turn chaotic, chaotic, uh, chaotic situations into orderly situations, or you, you watch people kind of start off in disarray and, and then by the end, everything is neatly solved and beautiful. And, um, yeah, that's like, that's like, that's like fetish viewing this year. I feel like, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's so, so disconnected from our everyday reality. Yeah. To watch something, a plan come together. Yeah. So that, that's been really fun too. And it's it, of, of the house shows out there. It's the, I think it's the best, most well done and most realistic. It, most of the projects span several years, whereas the American shows that I've seen are often just house flippers slapping up some ugly shit really quick um, and putting yeah. it on the market, which is less interesting. Yeah. No, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. When you watch stuff, you know, TV or movies, I mean, have you ever, I mean, do you do you have to shut off the part of your brain that thinks about how you would have scored uh, something or are you able to to not have to necessarily deal with the taking the uh, taking the office uh, taking work home with you you know when you're trying to enjoy some leisure time uh, no it's it's usually not uh, maybe because TV and movies are designed to get you out of your <laughs> work mindset but um, you know I often you know I definitely get inspiration if I'm watching a film with like a Jerry Goldsmith score or something. And, uh, and it's incredible. It's, it's definitely inspiring, inspiring, but I, I don't think about it in the same way that I'm, I approach a film or show that I'm about to score. Um, but I do think that I spend too much time in front of screens. So often it's not relaxing to watch, uh, TV shows or movies for me. And I end up reading and when i read to relax i'm not reading joyce or something i'm reading detective novels <laughs> yeah that's pretty good do you have any detective novels you'd recommend for the uh, for the listeners oh well i've read most of the the series that are popular both contemporary and uh and classics um i'll have to think about that and circle back but uh, you know it's it's funny because i just i just tear through them. I can read a book in a day. Um, and, uh, and, uh, then I forget, you know, that's transient because I don't really remember the plots. They're all kind of interchangeable. I, I forget most of it. Yeah. Right. Um, that's, it's like sinking into a, like, you know, reading like that is sort of like sinking into like a warm bath or something. You know what I mean? Like you're yeah. totally, you're totally in it. And then at some point you just, you get out of it and you get dried off and you go about your day, but it's really nice to be in there for a little bit. That's the way like, uh, Star Trek paperbacks have been for me lately. You know what I mean? Like, I don't exactly. Need- <laughs> yeah. That's a great metaphor too, by the way. But, um, yeah, I, I started getting into those because I was on tour with Marnie Stern and we would listen to detective audiobooks. She was really into, um, Michael Connelly. And this was before there was a Bosch TV show, but she got me into Bosch <laughs> and I read all of those books that was kind of uh, when I got into detective books and then I read several other series too. Um, yeah. It's like getting a massage or something. 
I love the idea of, of you and Marnie Stern driving around listening to detective audiobooks, you know, and then playing these, uh, you know, wild sort of uh, freak out prog punk, you know, compositions. That's a that's a nice uh, nice contrast. Well, she even quotes Harry Bosch uh, in one of her songs. Uh, I can't remember what the song is called, but it starts off with "There are no coincidences" or something like that, which is one of his catchphrases. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. she's a mega fan. That's awesome. Well, Joe, I just wanted to, to thank you for taking the time to join us here on, on Transmissions. And again, congrats on this great record and, and all the cool work you've been uh, doing. I'm sure that I speak for a lot of people when I, when I say that it's nice having your talks to listen to and uh, certainly nice having this, this record to listen to because it's a, uh, it's a real gem full of really great songs and really incredible tones. Nice job on the, on the vibe. Thank you very much. Yeah. I feel like I was just the person that polished it, but it was already there somehow. Well, that's a good, that's a good way to feel. And, uh, I hope that, uh, hope that we'll be able to talk about a second record soon and whatever else you got cooking up. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Underneath your thoughts. Flowing through your veins, poisoning your blood. Joe Wong here on Aquarium Junkard Transmissions. His album Night Creatures is available wherever you get music, and you can check out his work on the Midnight Gospel over on Netflix. And while you're at it, go subscribe to The Trap Set. Joe's podcast is a real pleasure to listen to each week. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write and produce the show. Andrew Horton edits our audio. Huge thanks to Andrew. Jonathan Mark Walls does video production for social media and YouTube. And our executive producer, main man and guru, is Justin Gage. Tune into his weekly two-hour show on Sirius XMU Channel 35, transmitting from Northeast Los Angeles, 7 p.m. California time, every Wednesday night. We'll be back next week with another strange talk for these strange times. Until then... Take it easy.